Angie has made it easier than ever to hire high-quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well. Just bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie will connect you with local pros who match your specific needs. Or book a service instantly at an upfront price. So join the millions of homeowners who use Angie to care for their homes and get your next home service job done well. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. Welcome to the latest edition of March Madness, March Madness 365. I'm your host, Andy Katz. And on this edition of our podcast, I'll be joined by three head coaches, Marquette's Shaka Smart, DePaul's Tony Stubblefield, and George Mason's Kim English. This has been an incredibly positive coaching carousel for the new hires. This is the latest statistic that came out of the Knight Commission as provided to me by the NABC, the National Association of Basketball Coaches, that 27 of the 53 head coaching openings were filled by African-American head coaches, which is great, a high percentage. But as you will hear me with each one of these three head coaches, none of these were handouts. These were earned. All of these coaches, the majority of these coaches, have been finally given the opportunity. And I thought Kim English, you'll hear this point that he made that this needs to be judged five years from now, obviously, not in this first year. But the opportunities that these coaches are given is long overdue. And college basketball has done a great job in comparison to other major college sports as well as professional sports in terms of granting opportunity. Some leagues are better than others. Big East is clearly better than the Pac-12 in this manner. Uh, the Pac-12 has had African-American head coaches before, but clearly needs to do better now. But the Big East is probably at the forefront of high major conferences. So this was a great development over the course of the last year. And uh, I think you'll hear the appreciation for the opportunities that were earned in each one of my guests on this podcast. Now, also, over the week, we had the National Basketball Naismith Hall of Fame induction ceremonies, incredibly moving. Vanessa Bryant, Kobe Bryant's wife, gave an incredible tribute to her late husband. She walked on the stage with Michael Jordan. Sean Sutton gave a tribute to his late father, Eddie Sutton. All the speeches were tremendous, from Tim Duncan, Kevin Garnett, even Kim Mulkey, uh, who's currently coaching. You know, it's always interesting to hear current coaches reflect back on a career that is still ongoing. And that's why I bring it up in that manner, because she's now off to a new job at LSU after really earning this through her career as a player at Louisiana Tech and then as a head coach at Baylor. So what does that mean? That means who's next for college basketball? And for me, it's really egregious that Bob Huggins has not been nominated for induction. 828 Division I wins. What he has done and did at Cincinnati and West Virginia, most notably, has been remarkable. He's influenced countless others. His coaching tree is pretty long. And so he's got a lot of disciples. So I think Bob Huggins should be next. And I hope he is. After Jay Wright from Villanova uh, was named for the 2021 class, deserving two national championships, 2016-2018. Uh, so he will be inducted in September. So that's this year. But who's next beyond? I think it should be Bob Huggins. If there are three other coaches that I think should be on the short list and at some point will get in, there's no question in my mind, Mark Few will get in. He's got 630 wins and two national championship games. And what he's done at Gonzaga is really unprecedented from taking over in 99 to now. I'd love to see Gene Cady get in, former Purdue coach at 550. That's how many wins he had and what he meant to Purdue and the Big Ten in the 80s especially. And then there's Billy Donovan. Two national championships, 06 and 07. So my question is, with 502 wins, 
and two titles. If Jay Wright, who I think deserves to be in, can be in, why isn't Billy Donovan in as a head coach? I don't get that. He should be in. If Jay Wright is in, and he should be, Billy Donovan should be in. So uh, I'll wait and see if all that happens. But that is my list. If I were to put these in order, it would be Bob Huggins 1, Billy Donovan 2, Gene Cady 3, Mark Few 4, only because Mark Few is still going to coach for quite some time. And you know, there are two other names that I think have to be on here. So I want to extend this list to six. Uh, Bo Ryan, everything he did in the Wisconsin State University system at all levels was phenomenal in building programs. Really, he is an iconic figure in the state of Wisconsin, obviously getting pretty close to two national championships with the Badgers in Division One in 2014, where I thought they were the best team in that Final Four that ultimately was won by Connecticut. You know, there's no question that I think they could have definitely won the championship that year. And then in 2015, they were, you know, five minutes away from winning the national championship against Duke. Uh, but I think also people forget, as I mentioned, all levels. You know, yes, he was at Milwaukee before Wisconsin, but what he did at Platteville has to be recognized because he won four Division three championships at Platteville in 91, 95, 96, and 99. So that cannot be dismissed as someone that needs to be under consideration. And then the other one that I think we'll get in at some point as well is John Beeline. John Beeline... Never an assistant from 1975 on, whether it was at high school, at Newfane High School, or Erie Community College, or Nazareth in New York, or LeMoyne, then the run in D1 of Canisius, Richmond, West Virginia, and Michigan before he had the abbreviated stint with the Cavaliers. You know, played for the national championship in 2018 and 2013. So like Mark Few, two national championship games. Losing to Louisville in 13, 18 to Villanova. So he needs to be under that consideration as well. So that's my six. Bob Huggins, Billy Donovan, Gene Cady, Mark Few, Bo Ryan, John Beeline. All right. So let's get to our guests. First up, Marquette's Shaka Smart. Shaka, before we talk about Marquette, I got to go a little bit back. I think for good reason. I was really high on Texas. <laughs> I picked you guys to go to the Final Four. I liked the bracket. I loved what happened at the Big 12. We hadn't had a chance to talk since then. So I got to just, you know, it was one of those crazy fluky games. You've been on the other side of them on a positive side uh, against Abilene Christian. When you just look back, what happened? Did you have to ask that, Andy? I got to get it out of the way first. Coaches try to move on from that stuff. But, you know, it's funny. uh, you never really move on from those games. And, and for whatever reason, as coaches, we, we kind of hold on to the losses a little bit more than we do the wins. But they played great. You know, they deserve a ton of credit. They flew around as well as any team that I've seen on the defensive end fly around in a long time. And it was not our best game. As you mentioned, we had won the previous game in the Big 12 championship game. We entered into the bubble like everybody else in Indianapolis. You know, honestly... I don't know that we handled that bubble great. Uh, we talked about it. It was something that was a big point of emphasis, but it was, it was certainly a departure for our guys from you know just being able to do basic things like go outside. But you got to give a ton of credit to them, and you know, and and also all the other teams that were able to get upset wins in the first round of the NCAA tournament. You saw a lot of that. So you know, the week. I mean, it was literally. I don't even know if, I guess it was a full week because of the extended time in the bubble, but I, I can't think of another sport where there can be such an amazing, like just this crazy swing within a week. And, you know, like I said, I mean, you've been to the final four, so you've experienced it on the other side. What's that like when you, you go from such a high winning the first big 12 tournament, and then you can feel as low as you can feel. Whew. Yeah. It's a, it's a heck of a swing, Andy. And I, I think that, I haven't talked to a lot of other coaches about this. I definitely would love to learn from, you know, guys that have done this a lot more than me. 
But I think when you win the conference tournament, it does create a little bit of a crossroads for your team going into the NCAA tournament because depending on the circumstances that go into winning it, for us, for instance, it was Texas's first time ever winning the Big 12 tournament. Sometimes the high that comes out of that, it, you know, is, is something that you got to make sure that you process the right way. Obviously, the, the ideal circumstance would be to say, hey, we want more. You know, we want to cut down on the nets again. But it's happened a couple of times to our teams this past season at Texas and then 2015 at VCU where I felt like it did work against us a little bit. You know, obviously it's the coach's job to turn that around, but the psychology of it is fascinating, but certainly it was a emotional high uh, on one Saturday and a devastating game on the next. So when did you know, because this was your decision. I mean, when, when did you know, you know what, there's an opportunity out here. I'm from the state of Wisconsin and, and I don't know, I'll be honest. I don't know if this was the only opportunity I know We've talked about your name and, you know, you're, you're a very popular figure. Uh, you're well-respected. You've got great credibility. But when did you know, you know what, I think I need to look at this and, and maybe despite I'm at a place like Texas, I need to move on. Well, I'm trying to think exactly when I did know, you know, I had got a call that there was a potential opportunity here at Marquette. And, you know, the way that my wife Maya and I, over the years have always done things is to talk about them together. And, you know, most of the time in the past when stuff has come up, it hasn't even been worth having a conversation about. Um, but this one definitely was. And um, not so much because I'm from here, but because a couple former coworkers and friends of mine had been part of staffs here at Marquette. Because of that, I had a real familiarity with this program. And, you know, to be honest, Andy, with just how special it is. So there was a real interest on my part, on Maya's part, when we found out about the potential job opportunity. And, you know, there's a time and a season for everything, but we felt like this was for us a really good time and a terrific place to go. So, look, I'm not trying to be naive here and say that it's got Texas money because it doesn't. Almost no one does. But a lot of people don't know that this program is supported as well as any program that I can think of. Uh, I go back to thinking about when Crean was there, and they were one of the first programs, non-football programs, I should say, where they were using charter flights to go to games, to go recruit. And, you know, the money obviously is there. The facility is phenomenal. Practice facility, the support uh, the fact that you're only, you know, I don't want to dismiss the Milwaukee's and Green Bay's in the state, but there's two primary big time programs in the state, one in Madison, the state school and Marquette, the private in Milwaukee. So all these things that I know, as you know, I went to Madison. I, I know all about Marquette. So a lot of people just don't get that. You knew that. Uh, what have also have you found even just being on the ground, not that long that, you know what, this program is supported a lot better than people even think. Yeah, the support's been incredible. And, you know, it's, it's not just the support by the people that actually work here. It's the support of, of those around the program as well. And the best way I can put it, Andy, is there's a real alignment here from the top down about wanting to be successful uh, in this sport. And not just successful from the standpoint of winning games and championships, although that is a big part of it, uh, but also successful from the standpoint of supporting the guys that are part of this program, which was a big part of, you know, what attracted us here. You know, the other thing that happened this spring and uh, what I think was great to see, it was earned, nothing was handed out, but also say in the Big East, especially, Big East has done a great job of hiring African-American coaches. I think they're at the forefront of leagues across the country. What did this coaching carousel tell you about opportunities given that are earned, no handouts here, to coaches that deserve that opportunity um, because the majority of hires were African-American coaches? Yeah, you know, it's interesting because if you look at that uh, dynamic in, you know, collectively, then a lot of people have said what you just said, Andy, and I appreciate that you said 
multiple times that those opportunities were earned. I don't even know that we should have to say that. But if you look at each situation individually, you know, whether it's Micah Shrewsbury at Penn State uh, or Ben Johnson at Minnesota or some of the other African-American coaches that have been hired around the country, uh, that hire made sense for that school and that program in that moment. And that's how it should be, regardless of race. So let's be honest, the majority of the guys that we coach are African-American. And certainly a black coach can coach a white player and a white coach can coach a black player. But I think the fact that there's added representation uh, amongst, you know, head coaches, whether it's in the Big East or nationally of African-American coaches, I think that's a great thing. Let's be honest, opportunity and access is something in our country that in a lot of ways has been lacking for people of color. And what you see in our sport is some real upward movement in those areas. And I think that's a great thing. All right, just a hard segue here to the roster. Everyone's using the transfer portal. Some are losing, some are gaining. How are you going to use it here for the roster that you're going to put on the floor next season? Oh, it's fascinating, man. Uh, We never really recruited a lot of transfers previously uh, at VCU or at Texas. I mean, just a few guys, but for the most part, we always just try to build through recruiting high school guys. But with this rule change, uh, it would make it ridiculous to not have an eye on who's transferring and to, you know, take a look at those guys. Uh, For us, I think anytime you take over a new program, there's going to be change. There's going to be some guys coming, some guys going. We do have a lot of new players coming in here. I'm excited about it. Uh, it's we as a coaching staff, we're going to be new to all of our players, regardless of whether they were returning players or new players. So I think in a way, Andy, there's a real opportunity uh, for coaches that are getting, you know, head coaching jobs this spring to take advantage of, you know, some of the guys that are out there that may have an interest in coming to your program. But you just have to do your homework and do a really good job figuring out who they are. So what what do you think this roster is going to look like? I think we got a chance, man. Uh, It's still in flux. Uh, I don't know that it will be complete until July. You know, we have Dawson Garcia who is testing the waters um, and is a really, really talented young guy uh, with a bright future. So as you know, that process has been kind of pushed back a month because the NBA draft is a month later than it normally is. We have some other guys that have been here that we really like that we're excited about. And then we got a bunch of new guys coming in here that we're super excited about five freshmen and then some transfers and we may add one or two more Andy. So um, it's still in flux. And once it's all the way set, you know, I look forward to talking to you again and running down each player. Hey, one last thing that I I think I'd be remiss if I didn't mention, because one, one of the, I think special things about you as a person and as a coach is your relationships. And I've never heard anyone say a negative word about you, which is rare in this profession. So you built pretty strong relationships and, you know, obviously, I don't know if there was one stronger while you were Texas than with Andrew Jones. He makes the announcement he's coming back. It'll be weird for you not to be coaching him in Austin. I just, your thoughts on him, you know, being a super senior, getting one last crack at, uh, you know, continuing his college career after everything that he's gone through. You know, Andy, believe it or not, he actually could come back for two more years. Did not know that. I don't know if he will, but, you know, if you remember his sophomore year, he was leading us in scoring and that's when he got sick right around the holidays and new year when, when he was diagnosed with leukemia, but he actually played a small enough amount of games where he can get that year back. And then, you know, the other year that he missed after that. So he could be a super junior man uh, if he wanted to. I'm just so excited for him. He spoke at, uh, at Dick Vitale's gala the other day and spoke so eloquently no one has really quite a story like that i mean there's there's so many great stories out there of people that have survived cancer but andrew's story when you combine what his family had been through before he was diagnosed with the basketball part of it and the the amazing comeback that he's made and how great of a player he's become again it's it's really one of a kind and i'm just so proud of him 
happy for him. He called me the other day after he spoke at that gala and just the appreciation in his voice for the opportunity to have a platform and share with others and impact others. I don't know if a year ago he knew how impactful his story is, uh, but I, I think now he's, he's really starting to realize that. You know, and I think we began this conversation about sort of the swing of emotions of a game. And, and I just think about the swing of emotions. That first game you guys had to play without him after he was diagnosed and the tears that were flowing from everyone to just, I think about last season, that shot he hit to beat West Virginia, you know, at the buzzer. I mean, like, it's really unfathomable, the swing of that, what you guys all experienced. Well, and it's not done yet. I mean, I, not a lot of people know this, you know, outside of people that really closely follow Texas's program, but Andrew had hip surgery last offseason. So as well as he played this season, this next season will be much better for him because he will have a full off season to do the things he wants to do. And it's been a long time that since he's had a full off season to prepare. And, you know, I, again, I don't think the story is over. I, I think you're going to continue to see amazing feats by that young man. And you're going to continue to look and say, wow, it's so incredible how far he's come because I'm telling you, man, if you stood there in that hospital room, and looked at him in the bed, 140, 150 pounds with tubes coming out of him and, and just this look on his face, you know, it, it, it's so emotional thinking about how far he's come. When you were right with him every step of the way, Shaka, just an incredible person of strength, you know, for him, I know, throughout the course of this. So, look, I'm thrilled that you're, you know, I've got a new opportunity. You deserve the best. And I think Marquette's going to be better for having you. So appreciate it. Thanks, Andy. I appreciate you having me on. And with your history in this state, hopefully we can get you up here soon. Andy Katz, that guy will rank his wife's dinners. He'll rank anything. Time for Katz Ranks here with the roster winners week six in the offseason. Uh, of course, you have to deal with everything that's official, not just what is tweeted out on social media. So let's start with my top 10 for this week. And a lot of these were coming in over the last couple of weeks, so I wanted to just wait on a couple of schools. So let's start at number 10. Texas A&M, which has seen its chair of players leave, brought in a nice class. Marcus Williams, outstanding player out of Wyoming, best freshman in the Mountain West Conference. Henry Coleman II uh, from Duke didn't really fully get to experience what he could do with the Blue Devils. Uh, and Jordan Hall from St. Joe's. So Buzz Williams, new crew, checks in at number 10. At number 9, Memphis picking up a couple of transfers and Earl Timberlake from Miami and Davian Warren from Hampton. Uh, Penny Hardaway has obviously been a consistently good winner with the Tigers in his short stint of uh, winning the NIT. And these guys will help them potentially get to the NCAA tournament. Uh, at number eight, Arkansas, they have really done a great job getting Chris Likes early. We talked about them. They were earlier on this list from Miami. Also added Stanley Amude from South Dakota. Uh, a good score, and I think he'll fit in really well with Eric Musselman's crew. At number seven, Arizona State. Yeah, they heard Remy Martin not coming back, although I'm not convinced he's going to go to another Division One college. I think he's going to try to become professional in some form or fashion, obviously staying in the draft for now. Uh, Marion Jackson from Toledo, best player in the Max. That's a huge plus for Bobby Hurley, former Mac coach at Buffalo. Jay Heath from Boston College. A.J. Brama from Robert Morris. So, new pieces for Bobby Hurley in the Pac-12. At number six, want to bring them into this grouping in Seton Hall. Kadari Richmond from Syracuse. Uh, Alexis Yetna. Prior to his injury, I thought he was one of the best rebounding forwards in the country. Not able to follow through with that at South Florida since he got hurt. So now maybe second life at Seton Hall. And then Jameer Harris from Americans. So it'll be very interesting how Kevin Willard puts this group together. At number five, Louisville. Noah Locke from Florida and Jared West from Marshall. So some scoring for Chris Mack and the Cardinals. At four, I really like what Dayton did here. I did a DePaul game earlier in the season and I loved Kobe Elvis. So uh, Kobe Elvis going to Dayton, I think that's a huge plus for the Flyers and Anthony Grant. Also picking up Tamani Kamara from uh, Georgia. Upgrading the talent with the Flyers. At number three, 
top three high school players here. Nolan Hickman for the Zags. This class gets better and better. Hunter Salas, Chet Holmgren. This is an outstanding recruiting class for Gonzaga. Andrew Demhard coming back. He's going to be the lead guard. And then you sprinkle in Hunter Salas and Hickman around him. And the backcourt is set. Oh, and Rasheer Bolton from Iowa State by way of Penn State. Now Gonzaga. So they got depth now on the perimeter. They're ready to go yet again. Kentucky gets the point guard, lead guard that they need in Ty Ty Washington. So that's a huge plus for the Wildcats. They wanted someone like this. It's got definitely a little flash, a little flair, and can produce. But at number one, Milwaukee, Patrick Baldwin Jr., big man with big dreams, trying to lead the Panthers, and his father, Pat Baldwin, the head coach of the Panthers, uh, this is the highest profile player, top five player going to the Horizon League. So Milwaukee at the top of our roster winners for week six in the offseason, the Horizon League. Uh, love to see the talent spread out across the country. And they head this list this week. And joining me now here on March Madness, March Madness 365, the new head coach at DePaul, Tony Stubblefield. Tony, uh, we've known each other a long time, decades. How does it sound to say head coach Tony Stubblefield? <laughs> well, Andy, first of all, thanks a lot for having me on. Um, it's definitely a different sound. It's, it's something I've definitely got to get used to. Like I said, I've been knowing you a long time. Um, looking forward to this opportunity, but it's definitely a different sound here in head coach Tony Stubblefield. I mean, you are one of those people in the game that has earned this has worked hard for it, various parts of the country, and this time was overdue. I'm just curious, like, how, how long did you feel like, you know what, I got to get my shot. When am I going to get my shot? You know, Andy, you know, that, that's a great question. And, you know, I just was preparing for the opportunity. Obviously, I was hoping to get the right opportunity. And there was some situations where I had been offered head coaching jobs. I just didn't feel like it was the right fit. I felt like maybe I could get a better job or just, you know, a better fit for me and what I was looking for. And, you know, I was blessed and fortunate to be at Oregon the last 11 years, and We were having a decent amount of success going to the Sweet 16, going to a Final Four Elite Eights. You know, I was at a great program, so I just wasn't going to rush for anything and any opportunity. I wanted a good fit for me where I thought I'd have a chance to go somewhere and be successful. Well, and, you know, look, Tony, I mean, the salaries had risen. There's no question about it. I mean, we had entered an era where if you're at a place like Oregon, you know, a high-level school, you can be a top assistant and make a good living. That didn't always, I mean, you've been in this a long time. That wasn't always the case where you'd say, you know what? It's not bad to stay as an assistant coach because I can make pretty good money, maybe better money in a lot of cases than a lot of low-major jobs. And you're definitely right about that. And, uh, Oregon was great to me and my family. Um, Rob Mullins, athletic director, Pat Kilkenny, the athletic director, and obviously Dana Altman. So they compensated me very, very well. And, um, it, you know, it's just a situation where I wanted it to be the right fit. But from a compensation standpoint, as an assistant coach, um, they did very well by me at Oregon. So they did make it challenging sometimes when jobs came about. And again, I didn't want it to make it just about the money because I felt that, hey, if it was the right situation, that I'd be willing to take a pay cut, you know? So I wanted to make sure it was the right fit for me. Well, and that was my point. I mean, I think years ago, it was a no-brainer. You know, you, you say, okay, if there's a head coaching job, well, I'm going to take that because I'm definitely going to make more money as a head coach. But times have changed, and not just in basketball, obviously, certainly in football, uh, to where you don't have to take any head coaching opportunity just to make more money. So I just want to establish that, but... DePaul, Dave Lato had two cracks at it. I've always thought that for various reasons, they should have been better. You know, one of the excuses for a long time was the arena, uh, playing out by O'Hare, very difficult to deal with that. You get your own arena. Uh, I know it's not literally on campus, but it's a much better situation. And look, there are glory days, but you can't live in the past. We know that's been the case with DePaul where there was a couple of stints where obviously you go back to the Meyer era, Ray and Joey, and then that little stint with Pat Kennedy, you know, when Q was there. I mean, so that there's been players that have come through there in various leagues, but since they've been in the Big East, it just has not happened. How do you change that? 
First of all, Andy, you know, I think it's all about players. You, you know, you, you have got to recruit extremely hard and you got to get the talent in here that will give you a chance to be successful. So that's one of the things that really attracted me to the job. It's just the recruiting base. You know, Chicago is obviously a great city. Um, the education you can get at DePaul, but there's talent in the city of Chicago, in the suburbs, in the state of Illinois, in the surrounding areas. And it's a job where I think you can recruit nationally as well as internationally. So, you know, I think the first step is you got to recruit extremely hard to get the talent that it takes to win in the Big East. So to that point, you know, there's no question that talent staying there is critical. In this era of transferring, how do you make it so that DePaul is a place, you know what, this is a destination, not a stopover. Well, yeah, I think you got to get involved with these young men at an early age. I think that's very important. And selling the dream and the vision that you can do everything you want to do right here in Chicago at DePaul. We have everything here in place for you. So there's a lot that DePaul has to offer. But again, you got to be very visible. Um, they got to know that there's a need here for them and they can accomplish all their goals right here. All right. So what's tops on your agenda? Recruiting, you know, <laughs> recruiting, um, finishing off the staff. But, you know, the number one thing is, you know, we got a couple more guys to get. Obviously, the transport portal is very big, but, you know, we're still open to junior college guys, international guys, high school guys. We're looking all over to try to um, fill out the roster and get the best players possible. Because that's the thing about Oregon. And I always love the stat about Peyton Pritchard that he played with like a crazy number of players in his four years. And you guys had done a great job of that, almost like an NBA team where, you know, every year or two, you're going to bring in different guys. And it wasn't the whole roster, but you're sort of used to that. And that might be the new era here, especially with the portal. What made that so successful at Oregon where you guys sort of have that roster turnover, but not let it affect wins and losses as much? Well, you know, we, we had to find our niche at Oregon and, you know, there just wasn't a lot of Division One players coming out of the state of Oregon when we got the job. So we had to figure out different ways that we were going to go about putting the best rosters available. So that's one way that we did go about it early on with looking at transfers, looking at grad transfers, looking at junior college route, looking internationally to put the best pieces to the puzzle together. So again, I think that helped kind of prepare me for a situation like this, because again, we had to recruit nationally and, and look all over for players at Oregon. And then once we started having some success at Oregon and guys could see the vision of coming to Oregon, having a chance to win Pac-12 championships, do well in the NCAA tournament, I think that kind of helped sell itself after a while in the niche of one grant transfer having success or a transfer coming there and having a success like Joe Young. And then so, you know, that was able to sell other guys coming in to fill those roles. So we can't ignore that this coaching carousel, you know, there's no question that opportunities, these aren't handouts, but opportunities for African-American head coaches have come at a higher level. You are one of the beneficiaries of that as well. By the way, your athletic director, who I know very well, and Dwayne Peavy, I'm thrilled to see also him be a trendsetter as well because we need more African-American athletic directors in the decision-making roles. And he earned it for his time at the SEC in Kentucky, now moving to DePaul. So I think the two of you together certainly can be great examples for others coming forward. But what are your thoughts on, on what we're seeing nationally right now? Well, obviously I'm happy with, with what we're seeing nationally. And um, I think it's an opportunity for African-American assistant coaches, uh, head coaches to finally get some opportunities. And that's not to say that there weren't guys getting opportunities, but obviously this year more guys did get opportunities. So I'm very thrilled for that. But at the end of the day, you still got to go out and put the work in. All right. So what's a DePaul team going to look like under Tony Stubblefield? You know, I think it looks similar to the way our teams played at Oregon. You know, we're going to try to be as athletic as we can, um, get up and down the floor. Um, a team that really shares the ball, plays plays for one another. A team that's going to change defenses, trying to keep the offensive off guard. But at the end of the day, a team that plays extremely hard, night in and night out, is going to give it all they got. I think, you know, there's no other way that you can get it done in the Big East. And again, I've learned from some very good coaches and Mick Cronin at Cincinnati, Dane Altman, the last 11 years at Oregon. So this is a team that's going to play well together, make plays for one another that plays unselfishly. When do you think in this unprecedented season that you're going to know your full roster? 
<laughs> That's a good question. You know, one crazy thing, and we never knew our full roster at Oregon until September sometime. You know, we were on a quarter system in Oregon, so we didn't start school until the latter part of September. And DePaul's the same way. We're on the quarter system, so we don't start till September 10th. So we're going to keep beating the bushes until about September 10th, where we really finally figured it out. Like I said, in Oregon, we got some of our better players in August and September. So there's definitely going to be a scholarship open if something comes available during that time. So, Tony, one last thing. You're the first coach I've talked to since the change in the CDC regulations. And, you know, it's wonderful. We're seeing more people vaccinated. But we're definitely going to see somewhat of two classes. And more schools, by the way, are saying, you know, students to come back, unless it's a medical or religious exemption, you need to get vaccinated. And so the more people vaccinated, the better our lives are going to be. And I'm just curious, for going through what you just went through at Oregon, you guys had pauses What do you think life could be like in the summer and in the fall? You don't have to always mask, you know, during workouts or separate what you guys had to go through in terms of little sub mini groups because you couldn't have too many people together, especially as a new coach trying to get to know your guys and implement your system. Well, for me, selfishly, hopefully, you know, they, you know, give us a little relief on some of those rules. And again, with, you know, more guys getting vaccinated, hopefully that's what it leads to. Cause you know, again, you're seeing these rules being lifted and, you know, not having to wear masks, you know, all the time. So hopefully we get to that point. And again, it's each individual's choice, you know, I'm sure as a player, but hopefully they choose to go that route to get vaccinated so that we can get more relief. So that we can have team meetings, um, team meals, um, practices, you know, without masks the whole time. So hopefully that's the direction it's going in, especially for a guy like myself that's trying to get adjusted with 10 new guys, you know, being a first-time head coach and just the things that we're going to have to go through this summer. Yeah, there's no question. The stress and anxiety of being contact traced or isolated or quarantined, no one wants to go through that again. Nobody. No. Now, those are some tough times. And again, you know, that's one thing that coach always stressed to our guys. We, you know, we knew we were going to hit some bumps in the road when the season started. And it was going to be the teams that kind of dealt with that throughout the course of the year and kind of hung together that we're going to be the better teams that were going to have the better year. So we just tried to take it in stride, knowing that there was going to be some pauses and we're going to hit some bumps in the road. And I'm sure there'll be some of that still this summer. Hopefully we're going to be on the other side of it in the fall. Tony, congratulations. Thrilled for you. And good luck. Uh, DePaul needs to be better in the Big East because I think the Big East will be better if DePaul is better as well. And uh, hopefully you can get it done. So I appreciate you. Thank you. Thank you for having me, Andy. And I promise you I'm going to work tirelessly to make this happen. And now joining me here on March Madness, March Madness 365, the new head coach of George Mason, Kim English. Kim, this is a long time coming. I have always admired the manner in which you have worked at this craft. Nothing's been handed to you. You earned this, uh, and the timing is right. Why was this the right job for you for your first head coaching job? Eddie, thanks for having me on. I just think it's a a special place. I think it's a special place at a special time. I mean, um, I'm from just up the road in Baltimore, and I remember vividly that 2016. And um, now, since then, they've ascended to the Atlantic 10. You know, we're still smack dab in the middle of the best, the most fertile recruiting ground in the nation, in the world. And uh, we're just really excited about uh, the opportunity we, we have in front of us at Mason. So you worked for Rick Barnes, who is a former George Mason head coach. The job has changed quite a bit since he was the head coach, obviously in a much better league. The Final Four run you're talking about under Jim Laranega. Uh, what did he tell you about why this could be a great spot for you. He just has such fond memories of uh, this place. And uh, he was a 32-year-old first-year head coach. And uh, so am I. And it's ironic it's at the same spot. He's actually coming up in a couple of weeks. Um, Two people that he used to work with and are near and dear to his heart, Jay and Carolyn Marsh, are retiring. And uh, he's going to be here for their last day. He loves the area. You know, he talks about him really growing as a coach. I mean, him being from small town, Hickory, North Carolina, and now, you know, being, you know, stones throw away from the same city as John Thompson and in the shadows of the University of Maryland. Like he talks about the recruiting that he used to do back then and some of the players, I mean, Hubert Davis and Tommy Amaker, some of the guys he didn't get, but the guys he went after. And in his interview, he said that George Mason is a place that can reach the Final Four. He said that in 1988 or 89. 
And um, it did years later, but uh, he loves the place. He's really excited. I'm really excited about um, getting this thing going. The other thing is that you worked for multiple people, which I think is critical to getting to where you are today. As you navigated your path, and I don't know how much you planned it out, but how critical was that for you to tap into the, the mindset of different people? You know, I planned it out a great deal. <laughs> yeah, I absolutely planned it out. And it, it was fortunate because, yes, it was Rick Barnes. Yes, it was Tad Boyle. Yes, it was Frank Haith, both as a player and a coach. But it was also um, Mike Anderson, who I played for for three years at Missouri. It was it was Lawrence Frank, who I played for with the Pistons. It was Tom Thibodeau, who I spent a training camp with in Chicago. It was coaches from all over the world. Luka Pavicevic. It was Nestor Che Garcia. It was coaches that I'd been with. And I was always taking notes of what I thought was effective and what I didn't like. And from Mike Anderson, it is his detail to the ball-specific fundamentals every single day in practice, right? Taking care of the ball, executing three-on-two, two-on-one, being able to play fast and still deliver on time on target passes. If it was Frank Hafe, it's his brilliant offensive mind. I think he's a, a modern offensive coach. I think what we did in 2012 offensively was special, and I hope we can replicate that. But more so from him, the confidence that he instills in his players. Like, it is a magic pill that a coach can put in a guy, and it's called confidence. You know, the player feeling that trust from the coach. Tad Boyle, if you were to say to him, if a kid told him he was choosing Kentucky or Duke, over Colorado, Tad Boy would look at the kid like he had two hits. He cannot figure out why you would ever want to go anywhere and play college basketball except for Boulder. And that's special to have that type of conviction in the place you are, right? That conviction comes out in your game plan and it comes out in your recruiting and it, 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 it comes out in everything you do. And from Coach Barnes, it's just an innate toughness. It's a toughness that your program has to have. And it's the standard operating procedure. And it's every single day, never relenting, never wavering from doing the tough things. The other thing, Kim, you know, you do a great job of bridging the gap where you're still young enough to relate to players and today's culture. On the other side, as you just detailed out, you've been around older, more experienced coaches. You're more mature now. How do you balance, you know, being sort of, connected, but at the same time, you have to be demanding, never demeaning, demanding and, you know, running it the way you want to run it, but yet still strike that balance. You know, I love it. And I think in the, uh, the, the business space or the tech space, it's a real asset to have someone that was born in the mid to late eighties. Uh, that's may sound weird, but I say that because old enough to remember what it was like to play outside and drink from the water hose and know what a phone booth is, but also I uh, know how to navigate the interface of Instagram or I know what Snapchat is like, you know, it, it's a it is a really cool space to be. But, you know, I had to figure it out as a young coach. I was 25 at Tulsa, 25 or 26. I mean, not too much older than my players. You're right. Like my ability to have a good relationship and a friendship, I have a friendship with our players. It, it does not stop me. It's never stopped me from being incredibly demanding. Um I, I kind of feel like it gives me more of a license to be harder on the guys, you know, because they know, you know, one, I've played in the league that they want to play in. I've, I've had success as a, as a collegian, but I'm in the gym sweating with them. I'm in the gym sweating with them one-on-one. -on -one. Like they know I'm sitting at home late at night watching film of them and sending them a video clips. Like they know I really, really, really want for them to reach their wildest dreams. And I like to say I'm the last old school generation. I think if you were born after 88, you're new school. But I, I still, I remember just, you know, I, when I'm talking to Dennis Felton or older guys in the business, I kind of can still relate. I feel like I can relate, you know? You know, the other thing too that I'm thrilled to see this off season in the coaching carousel, but I think you're a great example of this, is there are no handouts. You earned this. And yet we are definitely seeing and maybe it is because of what has happened over the last year, there's definitely more African-American coaches being hired in this coaching carousel. But like I said, I can't think of one that was like, oh, you know, I just have to do it to do it. Everyone I've talked to has earned it. They've put in their time the way you have. 
or they've gone up another level. What do you think about what has transpired in the sport where it really can be a model for other sports to uh, maybe the professional leagues and certainly other collegiate sports? Well, I really thank Dr. Greg Washington and Brad Edwards for, you know, bestowing upon me this great opportunity that I have. You know, if you earned it, you know, I, 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 I hope so. We'll see. But I would like to say that I've been preparing for it for a long time. Representation is important. And it's no secret the demographic of our game. And for young men to see head coaches that look like them, that came from the same area as them, even players we don't coach, you know, just driving through Baltimore or Southeast D.C. And be able to have young kids see me or Jordan Mency or Kyle Neptune or, or, or people that look like them that walk their same shoes. I think it's powerful and impactful. It's great. Right. It was a great stepping stone. But what's really important about this opportunity is five years from now, it's five years from now, that we've done what we were charged to do and have had success. And, you know, hopefully that will, will open up the door for the next wave of young aspiring coaches. The other thing too is you have a great voice on social media. And this has been a year where players have been empowered to speak their mind without any repercussions, which I don't think would have been the case 10, 20 years ago. I think people would have been afraid to speak their mind. Uh, you know, it has gone in waves of, of being outspoken as an athlete. And we're in sort of this new time period where it's encouraged. And you can also be that guiding mentor. And, you know, I think that you've done it yourself. Um, where do you see your role in that aspect as well? This is higher education. You know, I, I don't take lightly to that. I, I, I want to be a part of the higher education process at George Mason University. We have research and discovery and education like, you know, basketball is a small part of it. But, you know, I think I'd be remiss if I didn't challenge that education to be extended beyond the classroom. And that's giving our guys articles and spending time as a team talking about what's going on in the world, in our country asking them how they felt when they seen what happened to George Floyd, asking a young man what went through his mind when he seen that very traumatic image. And one, educating myself, continuing to read, continuing to dive deeper, to not speak without actual knowledge and giving our guys the power to know whatever you feel, whatever you want to do or express is your absolute right. We didn't have very outspoken players at Tennessee. Right. But they still felt things. They just weren't they weren't tweeting about it or Instagramming about it, but they felt them. And I let them know, like, that's OK. You're not a coward because you're not on the front line as, as an activist. I spoke about it with Coach Barnes. It's I call it player activism. You don't want to hinder any opportunity you may have in the future. Right or wrong. Right or wrong. You don't want to hinder any opportunity you may have. So you put your head down and you work on your craft and you get to the level of professional basketball when you're making a lot of money and you can affect change on your own family, your own kids, your own neighborhood. That's OK. If you want to talk about it, tweet about it, march about it. That's OK. You know, I just know that people that are acting on things for the right reasons history will always judge them the right way. I mean, I think the FBI deemed Martin Luther King the most dangerous man in America at one time or something like that. And he now has a monument in the nation's capital. You know, I remember the ridicule that Muhammad Ali faced when he was a conscientious objector. And I remember a few years ago, whenever it was sitting in front of a television screen, watching his funeral, how powerful that was, you know? so. There's biblical influence. I think it's Isaiah that says, seek justice, defend the oppressed. So, um, no, man, educate yourself and, and do whatever you feel is right. And that's what I think is great. And I'm very hopeful and optimistic we're in a different time now where players can use this power in a just way to share their emotions. And it should be celebrated. It won't be all over the country, but it should be. All right. Lastly, the roster. The transfer portal, it's a new era. You've already mined it very effectively, notably Deshaun Schwartz, 
from Colorado who had an unbelievable game against Georgetown with those five threes, finishing, I think, with 18 in that game. So you have already worked that angle as we talk here in mid to late May. What is this roster going to look like? I'm so excited about our squad. You know, we're bringing in three players that have played in the NCAA tournament. Deshaun, Davon Cooper, who I think is going to be a surprise nationally, and Devontae Gaines from Tennessee. Davon at 21 against West Virginia in the first round of the tournament, uh, mixed in with, you know, two freshmen that I honestly, I think in a normal year uh, without the portal, I'm not sure we get. You know, I think Blake Jones um, from Australia is going to be um, really exceptional and a kid we're all really excited about, Muhammad Mbai from Colorado Prep. He's uh, a Senegalese big man who has an incredibly motor and is really strong, but also mixed in with the guys we have coming back. Um, Josh Aduro was the most important recruit when I got the job. And I saw that in film. You don't teach 6'10". You don't teach 6'10 with skill. You don't teach 6'10 with a body and a frame. And he is from the area. And he's been a really good centerpiece kind of holding this thing together with the guys we have that were on the team, Ronald Polite and Jamal Hartwell and um, Malik Henry, Otis Frazier, and and mixed in with uh, the new guys. They're already group texting and messaging each other. I am so excited to get them all on campus June 1. I love our roster. Well, there's no question that Mason can definitely make a surge next season in the Atlantic 10, which should be a multiple bid league as it has been. And, you know, we'll be deep. And so that lends itself to opportunity. Uh, Kim, thrilled for you. You know, I just think this is a great opportunity for you. I think it's right up your alley in a program that you can certainly put in your own image and certainly be very successful. So congratulations. Thanks a lot, Andy. I appreciate it, man. And that'll wrap up this edition of March Madness 365. I'm your host, Andy Katz. As always, appreciate all of the downloads, everyone tuning in, re-engaging with this podcast in various forms, our team at Turner Sports, Abby Stoltz, Chad Acock, Michael Kaplan, the entire NCAA.com and Bleacher Report team that help us out. As always, stay safe, get vaccinated, and we'll talk again next week.